2 Corinthians chapter 6, we'll start in verse 14 this morning. If I were to take up a survey in this room right now, asking this question, what makes you different? What would you put? Maybe it's how tall or how short you are. Maybe it's how strong or how weak you are. Maybe it's uh, the color of your skin or what family you came from, whatever it is. Maybe it's something that you like about yourself. Maybe it's something that you don't really necessarily care for about yourself. But what is it that stands out about you? What is it that people ask you about the first time they meet you? Now, for me, it's my beard. I have so many people that across the spectrum asking me about my beard. Men, women, young, old, people ask the question of, how long have you been growing that, man? Or does your wife like that? Or how do you shave it? Or how do you clean it? Older people ask me, do you own a razor? Are you homeless? Things like that. Um, And so just to clear the air, I, I do own a razor. I've had this beard for 14 years. Uh, I clean it and wash it with baby shampoo. Um, I use beard oil of different scents that my wife picks out for me because my wife happens to love my beard um, and because it makes me look more like Jesus and she loves Jesus. So um, if she didn't like my beard, she would probably shave it off in my sleep like Samson and I would lose my strength. Um, But Lord willing, uh, I will not shave this beard for two reasons. One, I have two precious boys that I love dearly, and they have actually never seen my whole face. And I'm afraid of them seeing my whole face because they won't know that I'm their dad, but also I'm afraid of them seeing my whole face because they're like, oh my gosh, that's what I have to look forward to looking like, you know, 20 years from now. And I don't want that to scare them about growing up into adulthood. Um, True story, we actually shaved down my beard to it was really thin And my youngest son, Finn, was just a baby at that time, and it scared him so much that he wouldn't let me hold him for about two months. It just freaked him out that much. And so uh, that's one of the reasons my family, the second reason why I don't want to grow, shave my beard, is it's a huge conversation piece. I don't know if you know this or not, but being a pastor is not a great conversation piece. When you tell people you're a pastor, like, oh, and they sort of try to skip the subject and move to something else, but tell me about your beard is a, some reason people want to talk about it. I don't know why, but they do. And so um, having a beard is a prominent feature about me, but it shouldn't be the most prominent thing about me. It shouldn't be the boldest thing about me. It shouldn't be, uh, the the thing that stands out about you shouldn't be the boldest thing about you. Uh, Whether whether you're tall or short, or you have long hair or short hair, or the way that you look shouldn't be the most prominent thing about you. The most prominent thing about you should actually be your relationship with Christ. People should be able to see that being a major distinction in who you are. That's what it means to be a Christian. You're saying, I'm identifying, my identity is wrapped up in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so that's why we're different. And what what Paul is going to do with this text in 2 Corinthians 6 is he's beginning to show the church why they should follow godly leaders. 
And the point of chapter six is he's saying, some of you have been following leaders who are not godly, who are not any different than the world, but he's saying, you should follow leaders who are godly and are different from the world. And then what he's beginning to do is he begins to wrap them back up and bring them back to their identity in Christ. This is who you are in Christ. This is why the church, not just individuals in the church, but believers as a whole are distinct from the rest of the world. And that's what he's going to do in chapter 6, starting in verse 14. And that's the big idea that we have before us this morning. He starts in verse 14 by saying this. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Baal? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? Now, Many people have read this text and some have said, okay, this is a proof text for why a believer should not marry a non-believer. Although that is a true statement, a believer should not marry a non-believer. And we're actually going to talk about that a little bit here. That's actually not the main point of the text. It's not the main point of the text. However, it, we can see based on this text a theme that Paul consistently talks about. Believers and non-believers think very differently, right? Good, okay. One person agrees. We're, I'm, we've got a lot of work to do this morning, all right? Paul is saying in this text about how believers shouldn't follow non-believers in the ways that talk about the gospel, promote the gospel. There's a distinction is what he's saying. But, what, but while we're on the subject, and to use as an example of how believers and non-believers are different, let's just unpack the idea of believers marrying non-believers. Let's just unpack that idea. Should believers marry non-believers? The answer is no. And we can see that even in this text as an example of why believers shouldn't marry non-believers. One of the things that we say here at Integrity is what you believe about God is the most important thing about you, which means your whole life as a believer in Christ should be based on loving Jesus. He wants your whole heart, not just part of it. He just loves you that much. And so if that's the case, if this is the most important thing about you is that you love Christ, why would you marry someone who doesn't? Let me just play this out in, in, in one example. Because I'm a Christian, when I suffer, I should, as a Christian, suffer differently than the rest of the world. Why? Because I suffer, if as a believer, I suffer with a gospel perspective. I, I, I suffer knowing and believing based on scripture and Romans chapter eight and James chapter one and many other texts that Christ is enough. And my suffering is actually going to lead to a greater fellowship uh, with my heavenly father. But not only do I have this perspective as an individual, I actually share this perspective with my beautiful wife, Jessica, who's also a believer. And now we can come together as believers united. And when we suffer, we have this gospel perspective. But imagine what it would be like 
if I was a believer and she was not, and we got married and she, and we are suffering, I'm going through suffering and I understand my, the gospel realities of suffering. God's gonna use this for his glory. It's gonna be good for me because it's gonna draw me closer to him. And then she's not a believer and she's the only other side going, okay, bad things happen to bad things, uh, to bad people, good things happen to good people. And it's sort of this karma of you. How are we gonna unite under that? What are we gonna tell our kids when we're suffering? Well, mom's got this completely opposite view, but daddy believes this is gonna, no. How are we gonna seek counsel when we're suffering? Because we won't agree on the counsel that we would receive. How will we be able to go through these trials unless we're both believers, unless we have this understanding? But no, we're both believers so we can come together to the Lord and ask for peace. We can come together as we love Jesus and go to like-minded believers and seek counsel. We can go to our, our, our boys in their, in their rooms and say, guys, mom and dad, our whole family, we're going through a trial right now and it really stinks, but mom and dad trust Jesus is going to get us through this time of our lives. And we actually believe that because of that, he's actually gonna cause greater joy within us through this trial. You know what we should do, guys? We're gonna ask him right now to do that. See the difference between how a non-believer and a believer function together versus how two believers functioning together is completely different. And honestly, if it wasn't for Christ, and my wife would agree with this, I don't think Jess and I would have made it. Christ is the one who's gotten us through all of our junk. I'm intrigued by couples who can survive without Christ. Like when I meet couples, they don't know Jesus. They've been married for 60 something years. I'm like, what drugs did you take to get you through that time? Like, how did you do that without Christ? I mean, suffering is just one example out of many about how believers and non-believers think and act differently. Spending and generosity. How how is a believer and non-believer gonna think differently? Completely different. Your community, the type of people you choose to put yourself around, the type of people that you confide in. Your view of sex and intimacy is different. How you forgive one another, how you handle conflict with coworkers, neighbors, and family. Everything is different. Believers and non-believers think differently, and they should. I mean, you think of the example, even just still talking about marriage here. How in the world can a non-believer and a believer do it when the example in Ephesians 5 of Christ and his love for the church, how is a believer and a non-believer gonna emulate that? They both have to be believers to emulate that. It's hard enough to emulate that as a believer, right? Good, there's like a few married people in here. Good, they get it. But so there's a few factors that I wanna address in this. Should you date non-Christians? If you're a Christian, should you date a non-Christian? Again, I think we can biblically, biblically support no to the answer, all for the same reasons. Why do you date in the first place? Well, as a Christian, you date because you want to know a person well enough to see if you're compatible compliments to one another. That you're going to spend the rest of your life glorifying Christ together. That's, that should be your mission statement as a person who is dating. Dating is never to be an evangelistic strategy, Okay. If you're single in this room, don't date someone in order to share the gospel with them. I meet a lot of college students who will do this. Maybe I've seen college students who've had this long history. Maybe they started dating in high school and they broke up because one got convicted of sin or they became a believer. 
And what happens is they feel bad because the other one's just not as solid as they are. They're not as grounded or the other one's not a believer. But if I stay in this relationship long enough and maybe even commit to marrying the person, they'll become believers. Let me just tell you this. I've been a pastor for a little while now. I can tell you it doesn't work that way. You will only bring more pain and more harm and more confusion to the situation. In fact, you're probably the last person that should share the gospel with them because you're not the Holy Spirit. You let the Spirit do the work and then you obey and you walk in obedience. And what that means, walking in obedience, this means if you're dating a non-believer, you break up with them because you say, I love Jesus more than you. And that's the greatest apologetic you can show them. That's the greatest evangelistic strategy you can show them because they believe you love Jesus more than you love anything and you love Jesus enough to break up with that person. And by, and maybe perhaps God would use that breakup to bring them to brokenness and to bring them to Christ. But you're not the Holy Spirit. You can't play that role of the Holy Spirit. So listen, you can ask, if you're in this season right now of your life and you're a single person and you're dating and you're dating a non-believer and you're trying to, let me just tell you this. You can ask any of the men and women who are married to a non-believer how that's working for them, and it's not. It's a very difficult, challenging thing that breaks my heart as a pastor because I see it all around me all the time. Speaking of which, I do want to be sensitive toward those who are married to non-Christians. If you are a Christian, you're married to a non-Christian. Maybe you got married both as non-believers and one of you became a believer and you're just hoping that the other one will become a believer. Let me just say, I know that that is a very difficult situation, but let me tell you that what is lacking in your marriage can be fulfilled in Christ. And I can say that to those of you who are married to a non-believer and those of you who are married to a believer. What is lacking in your marriage can be fulfilled in Christ. Sometimes people wonder if they're married to a non-believer, should they leave the other person? Well, that's a whole nother sermon for a whole nother time. But Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 actually addresses this issue. We won't go there because of time. But Paul's argument in 1 Corinthians 7 is believers should stay married to the non-believer in hopes that the non-believer would repent and trust in Christ. This is while they're married, they're in the marriage together, hopes that the non-believer will repent. Even though the person's not the Holy Spirit, but they get to see the gospel lived out in their life. First Peter chapter three actually talks about this. And he says in first Peter chapter three, verse one, he says, wives be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be one without a word by, their, by the conduct of their wives. Now, obviously, Paul's arguing here in the marriage, if you're married to an unbeliever and you're a believer, he's saying you should try to stay with that person in hopes that they would repent. Even though you don't play the Holy Spirit, they see it in your life. And this is about unbelief, not about abuse, not about adultery, but unbelief. He's saying, based on unbelief alone, stay with it and hope that the person repents. Listen, if you're in this situation and you're in this church, man, we pray for you, we love you, and we hope that your spouse does repent. And the only way that they'll do that, they're continually exposed to the gospel and the work of the Holy Spirit in their life. So listen, I unpack this, this issue because A, it's very important. It's often neglected subject that the Bible actually has a good deal to say about. But number two, I wanted us to see this as an example of how different non-believers and believers are. And so when he talks about being unequally yoked, 
He's given you a large understanding, a, a big concept that continues on different facets of life. Yes, don't be un, unequally yoked with marriage. But here in this context, he's saying, don't be unequally yoked as far as how we, the leaders that we follow. And so now he's going to bring it back to the distinction that we as believers should have. And by doing so, he's going to ask sort of five rhetorical questions that are rooted in five rich aspects of our identity in Christ. And so I want, I want you to see, starting in verse 14, these five questions. Now pay attention to the questions that Paul begins to rhetorically ask because all these questions are, are rooted in these five aspects about our identity. Notice what he says, second part of 14. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Baal? Baal is like Satan or um, the Greek word is actually worthlessness, but it's kind of like darkness is, is the way that it's described. What portion does a believer share with a non-believer? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? These five questions are really rooted in five aspects of our identity. So I want to unpack all five of these. The first one he talks about is righteousness. The second one is light. The third one is in Christ. The fourth one is believers. The fifth one is temple. We're all of these things if we're Christians. The first one, he says, is righteous. Righteous. What does Paul say about the righteous? How can you and I become righteous people? How do we have righteousness? Well, Jesus has to die in our place. That's what Paul argues. He actually says it in 2 Corinthians 5, uh, chapter, over, ch- chapter before. He says, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, for our sake, he, meaning Jesus, made him to be sin, meaning God made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God, which means our sin is credited to Christ. And in turn, we are then positionally made right before God. In other words, at birth, when God looks at us, he sees our sin. But now, because of Jesus' perfect sinless life and sacrificial death on the cross, when God looks at us, he sees you and I as sinless. Why? Because he sees the perfect sacrifice of his son who died in our place. That's substitutionary atonement. That's what Jesus did. He substituted himself for us. So now when God looks at us, he sees us as perfect because of the perfect death of Christ on the cross on our behalf. And so this is what it means that we become righteous. We've been, we have been given a new life. We have, we're seen sinless. We're seen, the, the biblical word, the biblical idea of it is justified. We're made right before God. Some people say, just as if I've never sinned. That's actually a good statement because positionally, the way that God looks at you is just as if you've never sinned because of what Christ has done. So you're seen as righteous. God has justified us. The second way he describes the Christian, he describes it in a way of describing light. You have righteousness, but you've been given light. What has Paul said about light so far in 2 Corinthians 1, chapter 4, verse 6? He says, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God 
uh, in the face of Jesus Christ. What's the light that we have? Well, our hearts were once dead, but now the light of the gospel has shine, shone in and we love and we're drawn to this light. And not only were we drawn to the light that calls us to repent and believe in the gospel, but now we as believers exude that light. Everywhere we go, people should see that same light of the gospel that was exposed to our dead hearts all around us. Uh, John sa- Jesus says it this way in John chapter 8, verse 12. He says, I am the light of the world, and whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. He's saying, you'll emulate me because I am the light of the world. I don't know about you, but if you've ever had that moment, if you uh, own a house or live in a house or apartment or whatever your situation is, Hopefully you've never had a moment where someone has broken into your house. And if you, you are, I apologize. I, I, that's one of my biggest fears. Like somebody breaking in and me have to like shoot them or something. Not that I have anything to shoot anyway. But anyway, um, so we have these moments. And it happens like, I want to say it happens like once a year. Where we swear someone's breaking into our house. I remember the first time this happened was like a possum and a cat got under our house. And I swore that someone was trying to break into our house from underneath the floor. (laughs) When your mind is not working at like three o'clock in the morning, so I grabbed my baseball bat. I'm like, they're under the floor. And it was like, I heard like, and like, okay, there are cats and other animals under there. So, but um, I have these moments. So I try to like train my family. If somebody comes in, this is what we do. And so like the last time, this happened like a few months ago where, we heard like a, we have a cat and so the cat makes weird noises sometimes and we swore somebody's breaking in. My wife cuts the light on. I'm like, no, don't cut the light on. They know exactly where we are. The, I want to like crawl. And when they come in, I want to like take their legs out from under him and boom, I got him. He didn't see me because look, don't cut your light on because your light is obvious. Your light is telling, I'm right here. You know your house better than they do. Crawl around, sneak up on them, take them out. That's how you do it. That's how you do it, right? But don't turn the light on. Why? The light exposes the darkness. It shows where you are. And Paul's point here, Corinthian church, don't be ashamed of the gospel. Don't be ashamed that you're getting all this persecution from all these different places. Look, be okay being obvious, Be okay that people know that you are a believer. And so that's the example that he gives. And so the first one he says is righteousness. The second one is light. And the third one he says is we're in Christ. What does Paul say about being in Christ? Well, in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17, he says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. In other words, the people see a change in you and they attribute that change to Jesus. Have you ever had people compliment you about something good about your character? Man, your, your, your marriage seems so healthy. Man, you just seem to be so patient. You just seem to have so much joy. Your, your, your kids are so well-behaved, right? And they're just lying to you, right? I'm just kidding. Um, but they see these things in you. What do you attribute it to? Do you, do you begin to take the glory for it? Do you say, you know what? I wasn't always this way. You know, you know who made me this way? It's Jesus. Christ made me different. Christ gave me joy. Christ gave me hope. Who do we attribute the glory to? This is what it means to be in Christ. You're a new creation. So we have 
the righteous. We have the light. We have those who are in Christ. And the next one, he says, we are believers. Now, the believers is an interesting term. We use it here at Integrity a lot, but it's, it's really a minimal description of what a Christian is, a believer. You have to believe in Christ. You have to believe in the scriptures. When someone tells you that they are Christians, there should be some basic things they know and believe. They should say, Jesus Christ sacrificially gave his life on the cross for me. They should believe. They should believe it with their heart that his word is true. And if, if you're meeting with someone and they're saying, yeah, I've been changed and I'm mean, coming to church and it's just changing me. It's making me different. Okay, great. That's awesome. What do you believe? Do you believe that Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven? Do you believe that outside of him, there is no salvation? Do you believe that God's word is inspired by him and it's actually God's holy divine word and it changes you? Do you believe in this truth? You should. That's what it means to be a believer. I remember when I was in Bible college, I had this, this great guy. He, he came uh, in my, into my class. He was a, uh, we were in a, um, a preaching class together and this guy was a brand new convert. He, or he said he was a brand new convert. He said, I just became a Christian and I just, I just signed up and went to Bible school. Bad idea. Well, he starts going and great leader, great, great personality, charismatic leader, good looking guy, sharp, smart, all these things. And as I'm beginning to have these classes with him, he's becoming less and less convinced that the Bible's true. And he began to drift theologically. He began to say, well, I don't know if the scripture is really true. I mean, it's written oh, so long ago. And he went with the original copies. And then they began to dive into like, was Jesus a historical figure or was he real? And was it just a narrative? This was Genesis, the account in Genesis, was it really true? And then I remember at the very end of the first semester, he was convinced that we were all angels and that God and heaven were in a different planet. And he wants to bring us to his planet because we're, and, it, and he went way off base and then eventually left school. And he said he wasn't a believer. What do you do with that? I would say he was never a believer. Why? He was never convinced. He was never convinced of the sacrificial atoning death of Jesus on the cross. Once you are convinced, friends, once you are convinced, your life is not going to be marked by doubt. Yes, you're going to have doubt in your life because it's part of being a believer. However, you want recant your belief in Jesus Christ. Why? You are a believer. You are convinced. And so Paul says, yes, you're righteous. Yes, you have light. Yes. Um, what's the next one? What's the other one? Anybody? Oh, you're in Christ? Good. Um, and the last one, he says, you're a temple. What's a temple? Well, Paul, when he talks about us, he talks about we as temples. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, you'll see 1 Corinthians, he talks about temples multiple different times. One is when he talks about sexual morality. He's warning the church of Corinth about sexual morality. He tells them, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. But he also said that in 1 Corinthians 3, he actually opens some of his letters to the church of Corinth about them being temples. He says, do you not know in 3.16, uh, 1 Corinthians 3.16, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? 
What does he mean when he says this phrase? It's an interesting phrase. Multiple times in 1 Corinthians, and then we have it here in 2 Corinthians, he calls believers temples. Well, in the Old Testament, God's dwelling place was a tabernacle, and then later it was a temple. But now, Paul's argument is, and this is what makes us very distinct, now the church, both in regards to the individuals in it, but mostly the context, is its entity together is a place where God's presence resides in this world. Do you see that? We are God's temple. We carry the, the, the gospel everywhere that we go. And what Paul is going to do next to show us how distinct we are is bring this idea of God's temple into the next verses. In verse 16, this is what he says. For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling place among them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord. That's what he's telling those who are his temple. Be, go out uh, from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you and I will be, fathered, I will be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Here's what's really interesting about this passage. This is the prophet Isaiah telling the people of Israel, the people of God, that there's going to be a new type of person. And this person is going to be holy. They're going to go out. They're going to be separate. They're, they're not going to touch the unclean things. They're going to be super distinct. That's his point. And Paul's reminding uh, and by, this, by this phrasing, he's reminding them what the prophet Isaiah said. He's actually quoting from Isaiah 52. And Isaiah 52 is very interesting because it's to the people of Israel about a new nation, really. A new type of people. Now, the people of Israel, they were distinct and they were different. They were different because they were given the law. The law made them distinct. They had to obey a bunch of rules. Here's how I'm going to make you different. Obey these rules. That's how they were made distinct. But here in Isaiah 52, he's actually saying something different than just following rules is going to make you distinct. And I love it. I'll actually, I'm just going to read it for you. Pay attention to the language that Paul uses about really us about a person who's made new. Isaiah 52, I'll start in verse three. He says, for thus says the Lord, you were sold for nothing and you will be redeemed without money. For those says the Lord, my people, uh, for thus says the Lord, my people went down at the first into Egypt to sojourn there and the Assyrian oppressed them for nothing. Now, therefore, what I have here declares the Lord Seeing that my people are taking from nothing, their rulers wail, declares the Lord. And continually, all the day, my name is despised. Therefore, my people shall know my name. Believers, right? Therefore, in that day, they shall know that as I who spoke, here I am. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of those who bring the good news. Talking about the gospel, Believers taking the gospel to the uttermost parts of the world. 
who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. To the voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice together. They sing for joy for uh, eye to eye. They see the return of the Lord to Zion. Break forth together into singing your waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord has con- uh, confronted, uh, comforted his, his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations. And all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Depart, depart, go from here. Touch no unclean thing. Go out of the the midst of her. Purify yourselves, you who bear the vessels of the Lord. For you shall not go out in in haste. For you shall not go in flight. For the Lord will go before you. And the God of Israel will be your rear guard. Who is he talking about here? Something that the Israelites could not become. Because following rules and obeying the law does not make you a God lover. What makes you a God lover is what Paul or what Isaiah actually is going to communicate. The next section of Isaiah 52, which is all about Jesus's death on the cross that was prophesied. What makes you a God lover is that Jesus changed your life and made you new. And that is what is going to make us distinct. Not about obeying rules. It's about because we're distinct, we're going to have this desire to live a life that reflects his image. And this desire is going to make us all believers from all over the world, the church, distinct. Here he's talking about a physical nation, but you know what we are as a church? We are a spiritual nation. We are a nation that will never be stopped. We are a nation that will never be destroyed. We are a nation that will continue to ever, forever until we receive our inheritance in Christ. We're all gathered together, all the saints, past, present, future, and we'll worship our King and our Lord. We are what Peter says, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people who are made new. Isn't that awesome? We're worldwide. We're prestige worldwide. That's who we are. That's who we are. Christians, you can say that to people. I'm prestige. I'm a part of this family, this nation, this holy nation all around the world. And so listen, if you look at what Paul continues next, I hope that these words challenge you this morning. Notice what I'm just going to read, chapter 7, verse 1. He says, since we have these promises, since we have these promises of what Isaiah said we're going to be like, he says, beloved, In light of this, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of the Lord. Here Paul says, this is why you should strive for holiness in your life. This is why you should have a desire. The the boldest thing about you is you love Christ. This is why. So that the world may know of a God who saves. Integrity Church, are we different? Are we different? 
Are our sins forgiven, as Paul would say? Are you righteous? Do you know that your sins are forgiven? Do you have light? Do you exude light? Is it obvious that you love Christ? Are you in Christ? When, when people talk to you, do you talk about Christ? Do you talk about Jesus? Is he the center of your relationships and all the conversations that you have? And I'm saying every conversation needs to be about Jesus, but is it obvious that people, that you know Jesus? Are you a believer? Are you convinced that the gospel is true, that scripture is true. Are you a believer? Are you convinced? Are you a temple? Do you live in a way that reflects the indwelling Holy Spirit in your life? And if you can go over that list and say, no, that's not me. Maybe this morning you're not a believer. Maybe that's not why that's not you. And maybe you're trying to do what Israel has done, try to obey rules to obtain the favor of God, but it won't work. Here's why. You can't do these things unless you know Jesus, unless you love Jesus. So this morning, if if you're not a believer and you're not convinced, the only way that you're going to be convinced is by the Holy Spirit's work in your life. And so you just need to ask the Holy Spirit, Lord, give me faith to believe. Give me eyes to see and ears to hear. Soften my heart to the gospel. And then you ask the Lord to repent, give you the faith to repent of your sins and to surrender to him. And it's my hope this morning, if you've never done that, you can be made new by the gospel this morning by, by I'm going to challenge you to repent of your sins and to trust Christ. But if you are a believer, if you are a believer, being a Christian should be the boldest thing about you. And that is what makes us distinct from everyone else. Here in Integrity, we say it this way. The gospel is our epicenter. The gospel should change everything about you because you have a new identity in Christ and you've been made new. And it's my hope that we would be the church who dares to be different in this way, a distinct people, a holy nation. God help us. Let us pray.